hopefully you can open there toward the end of the chapter. And then uh, there are printed messages at both exits if you want to grab one and follow along the uh, manuscript. And there's more verses and so on there you can look up later. And um, all of the messages are on the church website as well. And appreciate your prayers for that ministry as uh, I get emails every week from people around the country and had one from uh, Queensland, Australia this morning that are reading those messages online. So please pray for the effectiveness of those. In John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to the disciples in the upper room and he continues by saying these things, this is verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I've told, told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. I want you to understand that I wasn't reading what I'm going to quote in a moment on my study leave this past week. I read a little more heavy stuff than this. But in uh, one of my Peanuts cartoon books, Charlie Brown and Linus are standing there looking really serious. And uh, Violet comes up and she asks, uh, "What, what are you two standing here looking so worried about? And Charlie replies, we're afraid of the future. And Violet asks, are you worried about anything in particular? And Charlie says, oh, no, we're worried about everything. And then Linus pulls his thumb out of his mouth and adds, yes, our worrying is very broad-minded. Well, it's not news that we live in a world that gives us much to worry about, as we've seen on the news in the last couple of weeks. You know, a hundred years ago, before modern media, a tragedy like happened in France could happen around the world, and you may never hear about it, or at least it would have taken quite a while for the news to get to you, but now something terrible happens, a terrorist event or a, a another tragedy, some sort of earthquake or flood or whatever, and we hear about it almost instantly. And, of course, we can even pull out our iPhones and watch it in video on our phones. So we are exposed to all of these worry factors that increase anxiety in the the, uh, present day. In fact, the um, cover story on this morning's Parade magazine is about what do you have to fear? And they try to tell you, you shouldn't fear this and you should fear that and so on. Uh, 
interestingly, they leave out fearing terrorist threats. But anyway, living in a world like that, we need to know how to have genuine joy instead of being overwhelmed with depression and genuine peace instead of experiencing anxiety and fear. Joy and peace, as you know, are fruits of the Spirit, and so they should mark us as Christians. People should be able to look at us and recognize that we have something that they lack. But let me be quick to add, the reason we should want joy and peace in our lives, the main reason, is not so that we will be joyful and peaceful. I mean, those are pleasant qualities, and we all want to live a pleasant life, But the main reason we should want joy and peace is so that we glorify our Lord and Savior. So that people look at us and there is a glimmer, a reflection, however dim, of Jesus Christ that makes them ask, well, what what is it about you? And then, of course, we can tell them about our Lord and Savior. Now, in our text, Jesus is amazingly giving encouragement to the disciples, and I say amazingly because here he is, he's going to face death, and not just any old death, but death on the cross, and that was not just the physical, but he knew he would be bearing our sin on the cross, and thereby his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, in 24 hours, and yet here he is ministering to the disciples. Isn't that remarkable? His focus easily could have been on, you know, you guys, sorry, but I just need to focus on what's ahead. I can't think about you, but here the Lord is thinking about the disciples. He recognizes that in just a short while, their their world is going to be turned upside down as they see their Savior crucified. And so he's ministering to them to give them encouragement and to equip them for the trials they're going to face. And his words show us how we can have joy and peace in our troubled times. There are three things here. First of all, he says we can rejoice because he, Jesus, has returned to the Father. Secondly, we can rejoice because he sent the Holy Spirit to teach us. And then thirdly, we can rejoice because he gives us his peace for our troubled times. So first of all, let's look at this fact that we can rejoice that Jesus has returned to the Father. Now, he's giving a gentle rebuke to the disciples who are understandably troubled about the news that Jesus is leaving them. And so in verse 28, he says to them, You heard that I said to you, I will go away and will come to you if you love me and the Greek phrase there indicates, but you don't. If you'd love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, Jesus doesn't mean, of course, that the disciples did not love him at all, but he is exposing the fact that they are self-focused and they don't understand what's going on and their, their love for him needs to come up. It needs to be full and it is not. Now, heretical groups such as the Jehovah's Witnesses pounce on that phrase, the Father is greater than I, and try to say that it proves 
that Jesus is not God. But their reasoning is very, very faulty. Um, If you're going to interpret the Bible, you have to interpret the Bible in its context. And just taking the Gospel of John alone, you have to interpret that phrase in the context of the Gospel of John. Uh, beginning in John 1.1, and the Jehovah's Witnesses pervert this verse by mistranslating it. But in John 1.1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then in John chapter 5, the Jews accused Jesus of you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Now, if that were a false understanding on the part of the Jews, surely Jesus would have quickly corrected them and said, oh, no, 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 you misunderstood me. I didn't mean to assert that I was God, but instead he goes on, and I don't have time to read it, but he goes on from verses 19 through 47 of John 5, uh, piling it on, reason after reason after reason, he, he makes statements that only God in human flesh could make. Then again, we get to John chapter 8 and verse 58. And the Jews are challenging him again. And there Jesus makes the astounding statement, Before Abraham was born, I am. Which reflects back to Exodus 3 where God says, I am is my name. Um, and so again, they picked up stones to stone him for claiming to be God. In John chapter 10, again, Jesus plainly asserted in verse 30, I and the Father are one. And again, the Jews pick up stones to stone him. And uh, Jesus, rather than saying, uh, they say, we're stoning you because you make yourself out to be God. Again, rather than backing off, Jesus uh, reasserts his claim. In John chapter 14 and verse 9, after Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father, Jesus says, Have I been uh, so long with you, Philip, and you have not come to know me? Uh, He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Again, a clear claim to be uh, deity. And then the, the Gospel of John really reaches its apex in chapter 20, where doubting Thomas sees the risen Lord Jesus. He falls before him and cries out, My Lord and my God. And Jesus does not rebuke him there for blasphemy, which surely he would have done if Thomas were mistaken. Jesus would have corrected him, as Peter does, for example, in Acts 10, when Cornelius bows down before him. Peter says, Get up, get up, you know. I'm just a man. Come on. Uh, Jesus does not do that, but rather he commends Thomas for his belief and uh, states that others who have not seen him will be blessed for believing as well. So if you're going to correctly interpret John 14, 28, my father is greater than I, you have to interpret it in that overall context of the Gospel of John. Also, think about this. If we were having a conversation and I said, well, you know, God is greater than I, you would say, what? You know, he's lost his marbles. He's delusional. How can he even begin to compare himself with Almighty God? 
you know, the comparison is so ludicrous that even to state that, you know, God is greater than I, you would say, this guy is a nutcase. And yet Jesus could say it because, as we saw in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. And so Jesus here is certainly not denying his deity. So then the question is, well, why does he tell the disciples in this context that they should have rejoiced at the news of his departure because for, that's the reason, the Father is greater than I. I believe the reason is this. In his incarnation, Jesus laid aside his glory, glory that he shared with the Father from eternity. And he uh, took on the form of a servant and, as you know, became obedient to death on a cross. After his resurrection, he will be restored to that glory that he shared with the Father from all eternity. He says that in John 17, 5. And he will be seated at the right hand of the Father in glory over all rule and authority and dominion and every name that is named both in this age and in the age to come, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. Also, after he is risen and ascended to the Father, he promises to send the Holy Spirit to indwell all believers. Every one of you who have believed have the Holy Spirit living in you, which is greater than when Jesus was localized in a body on earth. He could only be in one place at a time in his body. And so Jesus is saying to them, if you had understood all of these things and loved me as you should, you you would have rejoiced to hear I'm going to the Father because all that will take place. Also, we need to understand, though, that even in heaven... There is a hierarchy of authority in the Godhead. Um, The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God, eternally, equally one God. And yet at the same time, the Son submits to the Father and the Spirit to the Father and the Son in the carrying out of the divine plan of redemption. And that does not imply inferiority of personhood or lesser God or anything like that, to use the analogy of marriage. Wives are to submit to their husbands. That doesn't mean they aren't human. Uh, It doesn't mean that they aren't fellow heirs of the grace of life. It's simply an economic arrangement for the carrying out of God's plan for the family. And the same with the Godhead. All three members are co-equal, co-eternal. Uh, The old Athanasian Creed stated, The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And those are uh, difficult truths to state, but nonetheless true. Now, you say, well, all this is kind of highfalutin theology. How does that apply to me? Well, it applies to you in this way. If Jesus is the eternal Son of God, and he is now sitting in glory at the right hand of the Father over all rule and authority, then Jesus is sovereign over every troublesome event in this world, and he is sovereign over every troublesome event that comes into your life and my life. And it means we can trust him. Even though it's hard, even though we may not understand, he has promised to work all things together for good, 
to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. And we may not see the outworking of that until we are with him in heaven, but it's very practical in terms of trusting him when you're in the fires of temptation or trial. In John chapter 14 and verse 30 and 31, Jesus also makes it clear that he is sovereign over Satan and he is sovereign over the events of his own death. Um, In other words, Satan doesn't get the upper hand on God sometimes and God's scrambling to try to figure out, oh no, now what do I do? That's dualism. That's the teaching of Zoroastrianism, but not of the Bible. God is sovereign over Satan. And so Jesus says, Satan has has nothing over me because Jesus was sinless. And so Satan could not accuse him in any way. And Jesus shows he went to the cross in order that the world might know that he loves the Father, that he's obedient to the Father. And as we saw back in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I have authority to lay down my life and I have authority to take it up again. And that commandment he received from the Father. And so, again, the practical application for us is Satan can only touch us to the extent that the Lord gives him permission. He's kind of a nasty, mean dog, but he's on a leash, and God holds the leash. And he can only bark at us as far as God allows him to do, and no farther. Jesus also repeats, to way of comfort here, in verse 28, that he will come to you, he says. I will come to you. That could refer to one of three things. And all of these are in chapter 14. It could refer to his coming again. We saw that up in chapter 14, verse 3. He promised that he will come again. It could also refer to his post-resurrection appearances. We saw that in verse 19. Jesus says, you'll see me again uh, after he's raised from the dead. It could also appear to the sending of the Holy Spirit that he will come to you, to the disciples, in the person of the Holy Spirit because he promises not to leave them as orphans. And of course, all three of those are a comfort to us and a source of joy to us in troubled times, knowing that Jesus is coming, knowing that Jesus is risen, and knowing that he has sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us. I think if I'm going to give a nod to one here in this context, it would be to the coming of the Holy Spirit because he promises that in our text. And that leads to the second reason that we can rejoice. First of all, we can rejoice because Jesus has returned to the Father. Secondly, he says we can rejoice because Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to teach us. And here our focus is on verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father has sent, or will send, I should say, in my name at the day of Pentecost, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, the last part of that verse shows that it applies first and foremost to the disciples. Jesus spoke many, many things to them. And they did not have a little recording device that they could play it and then say, let me play that back and get it. The Holy Spirit was that device. Uh, Jesus promises here to the apostles that when the Spirit comes, 
he's going to bring to your mind everything that I said to you so that they could write it down and record it for us in the New Testament. Furthermore, he's going to give them understanding. He's going to teach them. Uh, As we've seen in this very chapter, Thomas in verse 5, Philip in verse 8, and then Judas, not Iscariot, in verse 22, all misunderstood what Jesus was saying. They just couldn't handle what or figure out, what does he mean? But he promises the Spirit will give you that understanding. And so on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came on the disciples and all believers, and they now are able to understand. And you have a record of what they recorded right here in the New Testament. And that means we can have confidence that the New Testament is inspired by God. Uh, Peter in Second uh, Peter 1.16 says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his glory. Uh, and although Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 refer primarily to the Old Testament, I believe they easily can be extrapolated to the new when he says all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be uh, adequate, equipped for every good work. And the more you study the Bible, the more you realize this is not a human book. It is more than coincidental that the Bible, all of its parts, 66 books written over many, many centuries by over 40 different authors, all fits together into a unified theme and does not contradict itself. There is a secondary application, though, of verse 26 for us. The primary application is to the apostles. The Spirit told them everything Jesus spoke. But for us, the indwelling Spirit will teach us as we rely on Him and as we ask Him to bring to our minds uh, the word that we have studied at the very time we need it. Now, this isn't automatic. You have to diligently study the Word of God and ask God for understanding in it uh, as much as you can. You need to memorize as much as you can because, as I said a week or two ago, when when you're out there and temptation hits, you're not going to probably have a Bible in concordance to say, just a minute, I need to find where that verse is. You need to have it in your brain. And so you need to study and you need to learn. And Proverbs chapter 1, you remember, wisdom calls out and it invites everyone to come to wisdom and receive and learn. But it also warns and says, do it now because when calamity strikes, it's going to be too late. See, you're going to be at a loss at that time. You, You need to be feeding on the Word of God now and then when difficulty hits, as surely it will in all of our lives, You'll have the resources you need to understand Scripture. Now, of course, uh, you need to understand Scripture in its context. And uh, you have to interpret the Bible properly. 
you compare scripture with scripture, uh, you think about the author's intended meaning, what, what did it mean to the original readers, and all of that. And then I think there's great benefit. Some, some pastors and super spiritual guys will say, oh, I don't read commentaries, I just let the Spirit teach me. Well, I'm sorry, but the Spirit teaches through gifted teachers. And they happen to write down what they've studied. And so there's great benefit in reading what these men have written. And I never get in the pulpit without having read at least a dozen commentaries and trying to understand, do I have a correct understanding of this text? And while you may not have all those tools, I will point out there are many, many tools available online if you have a computer and the Internet. And so study the word diligently. The Apostle Paul put it this way in... um, 1 Corinthians 2.12, he said, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Paul saying, you got a treasure chest here, and it's the spirit who tells you what the treasures are. So dig into it and say, God, would you show me the treasures of what has been freely given to me by God in the Word, and then you will uh, have those, and then ask Him, Lord, bring to my mind the things that I need to know when I need to know it. And I would argue, by the way, read the Word consecutively. I, I read a psalm every morning. I read from the Old Testament and the New, just in consecutive order, And that way, you get the balance of Scripture. And I find it's more than coincidence. Often, within a day or two of what I've read, something comes where I apply it. And I realize, oh, yeah, I just read that. And it then applies into my life. So Jesus says, first of all, then, we can rejoice in this troubled world because he's returned to the Father where he's now enthroned as Lord of all. Secondly, we can rejoice because he sent the Holy Spirit to teach us. And then thirdly, he says we can rejoice because he, Jesus, has given us his peace for our troubled times. And here the focus is on verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. It's a wonderful, wonderful promise from our Lord. And I want to ask and answer two questions about it. First of all, we need to understand what is Jesus' peace? And secondly, then, we need to understand uh, how can I get it when I need it? So first of all, what is Jesus' peace? And we need to look first at the negative because Jesus says his peace is not the peace that the world gives. Not as the world gives do I give to you. It's different than that. And the world has its own ways of achieving peace. Uh, I saw a news thing on TV recently about a middle school in San Francisco that now it's mandatory. All of its students practice transcendental meditation a half an hour a day. And the proof is in the pudding. They say that grades have gone up and problems in the school have gone down since they all have begun uh, this half hour of practicing Hinduism. 
And so you can't read the Bible or pray in our public school, but you must, it's mandatory, practice Hinduism. It's incredible. And if you get the uh, local paper, last week's Parade magazine had as a cover story uh, meditation. And the title was The Number One Health Booster in 2015. And on the cover it said, Politicians, Children, and Celebrities Are Doing It, Shouldn't You? And if you read the article, there's even one of our congressmen who now has a group of people crossing their legs, closing their eyes in the lotus position and chanting Om in the Capitol. So this is from the government on down and, oh, all kinds of benefits that they claim that it brings. Uh, Others, as you know, seek peace in various ways, exercise, counseling, false religions, prescription drugs, illegal drugs, uh, alcohol, other things. But Jesus is saying, none of those are from me. That's not my way of peace. That's the world's way. And you can achieve a measure of peace that way, but it's not the peace we're talking about here. So what is it? Well, I believe Jesus' peace is the inner calm and the freedom from anxiety that comes from trusting in the sovereign God and knowing that you're obedient to Him. Peace is from the Hebrew shalom, as you may know, and for the Hebrews, shalom referred to overall well-being, contentedness that comes from God. Uh, It's not in that word, but it's pictured in the 23rd Psalm there of the psalmist being a contented sheep in the pasture of the Lord. Uh, Dr. Carson, D.A. Carson, says, Peace is one of the fundamental characteristics of the Messianic kingdom anticipated in the Old Testament, and then he gives a slew of verses, and fulfilled in the New with other verses as well. Now, there are three dimensions to the peace that we have in Christ. First of all, we enjoy peace with God because Jesus Christ bore the penalty for our sins. And that's what Romans 5.1 says. Therefore, uh, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that verse means if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord, then you need not fear God's judgment when you die. You will be accepted into heaven because God took your sin and put it on Christ. And he took Christ's righteousness and he put it on you. And that transaction took place when you believed in Jesus Christ. So, peace with God. Secondly, we have what we could call the peace of God in the midst of life's difficult times. Now, that only comes to those who have the first one. So, first of all, you have to have peace with God. Then you can experience the peace of God in difficult situations. But while obtaining peace with God is simple depending on faith, obtaining the peace of God is not effortless and it's not necessarily easy. You have to fight to get it. And I think exhibit A is our Lord Jesus himself. Back in John chapter 11, we saw that Jesus, who here commands his disciples not to be troubled, 
Jesus was troubled when he saw the weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. Then in John chapter 12, we saw that Jesus was troubled again as he realized that the hour, the appointed hour, had come, the hour of the cross. In John 13, in the upper room again, we saw that Jesus was troubled as he thought about the fact that Judas was about to betray him. And so Jesus had to work through that trouble. Uh, The peace that Jesus is talking about here is not detachment. You know, where you just kind of ignore all the problems and, and uh, tune out. It's not indifference. It's not aloofness. It's not the kind of um, whatever, you know, that we hear today. No, it's, it's a peace that comes as we wrestle with real emotions. We recognize them, that we are troubled, but we take them to the Father in prayer. And in John 17, Jesus prays the whole chapter It's the longest prayer of Jesus or any one in the New Testament that we have. And then uh, in the garden, as you know, Jesus wrestled with the Father there, sweat great drops of blood, and finally came to peace as he recognized, not my will, Father, but yours be done. He was trusting in the sovereign God because he knew he was doing the will of God as he died for our sins. So it sounds contradictory, but... To get this inner peace, you have to fight for it. It's not automatic. And that's why Jesus commands in verse 27, Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. He's saying, don't just give sway to your emotions. Yes, you will have emotions, but don't let those rule your life. You must conquer your emotions and take control over them. And you see that often in the Psalms. That's why I love reading a Psalm every morning. They're so real to life. You'll see David where he is in turmoil. And people are after him and they're going to kill him. And sometimes, you know, he's right on the verge of death as he cries out to God. And he's just, the Psalms are so full of real emotions that we all experience when we're in crisis. I love Psalm 57. David is in a cave. Now, if I was hiding in a cave and an army was right outside looking for me to kill me, I think the last thing on my mind would be to compose a a song, you know. But David writes a psalm. And it's a great psalm where he cries out, Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And and then he gets down in the psalm, and in verse 7 he says, My heart is steadfast, O God. Well, is it? My heart is steadfast, he adds it again. I will sing. Will I? He affirms it again. I will sing praises. You see his resolve there? It's like he wavers after the first statement. You know, my heart is steadfast. Well, is it? Yeah, my heart is steadfast. He affirms it. I will sing. Really? Yes, yes, I will sing praises. And so he's fighting it. And and part of the fight involves reciting who God is, what God has done in the past, what God promises in His Word. And that's why you need to be in the Word, to have this peace, because it is your mainstay in a time of trouble. So we have peace with God through faith in Christ. We have the peace of God in our soul in the midst of trouble. And then thirdly, we have peace 
with others that God brings. Ephesians 2.14, Paul says this, For he himself, Christ, is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Both groups refers to Jews and Gentiles, who in that day were natural enemies, hostile toward one another. And Paul says God broke down the barrier, the dividing wall. And that's an allusion to there was a a literal chest-high wall in the temple that divided the court of the Gentiles from where the Jews could go. And there was a sign on it that said, if you're a Gentile and you go past here, you are responsible for your own death. So there was this barrier. And Paul says, in Christ, there is no Jew or or Gentile. Uh, We are all one in him. And so there is peace. But, like inner peace, peace with one another in the body of Christ does not come automatically or effortlessly. You have to work for it. You have to strive for it. Because inevitably there will be differences, there will be misunderstandings, there will be hurt feelings. I mean, we all experience that just in the microcosm of our families. And then you multiply families into a church and exponentially the potential for hurt grows. And so to be one body in Christ, to be at peace with one another, you have to be committed to working through relational issues You have to be committed to dying to self, to asking forgiveness when you wrong someone, to granting forgiveness to those who have wronged you, and wrestling with that. Paul, in Romans 12, 18, says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Sometimes it's not possible, he acknowledges. But you do your best to to be at peace. Then he adds in Romans 14:17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but rather it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then again, he adds two verses later. So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another, or that could read, let us pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. And so the Lord grants his peace as a gift. He emphasizes that here. But that doesn't mean that you just experience the gift being passive. You have to work at it in relational uh, relational healing. So uh, Jesus' peace then is that inner calm and freedom from anxiety that comes when we trust the sovereign God and we know that we are obedient to Him. Uh, It is not automatic, at least the inner part of it. We have to work at it. The second question then I want to answer here is, well then, how can I get Christ's peace when I need it? And I've already mentioned several ways. You get peace with God when you believe in the Lord Jesus as your Savior. You get the peace of God when you take control of your emotions through prayer and obedience to God's word and obedience to God's will. And you get peace with others when you're committed to working through relational difficulties uh, in the spirit. But let me just expand on these 
in four ways as we close. First of all, to have Christ's peace in troubled times, walk in the Spirit, and ask the Spirit to teach you His Word. As I mentioned earlier, joy and peace are the fruits of the Spirit. They have yet to come up with instant fruit, if you've noticed. They have instant almost everything. But fruit takes time and cultivation to grow. And it's the same with the fruit of the Spirit. It's not instant, but if you work at it, you cultivate it, it will grow in your lives. And you do it as you walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5. But as I said, you have to do that before the crisis hits. If you don't, the crisis will hit and you'll have no resources. You won't know how to respond. And so now is the time to be walking in the Spirit, asking the Spirit to teach you the Word, and then you will have His joy and His peace when you get into a crisis. Secondly, to have Christ's peace in troubled times, make sure you're doing God's will. I've already alluded to that. At the end of verse 31, you'll notice that Jesus says he's doing exactly as the Father commanded, and then he says, get up, let's go from here. Now, commentators are divided. Did they stay in the upper room at this point, or did they leave? Because the, the upper room discourse seems to go on through chapter 15 and 16, and then you have that extended prayer of Jesus in chapter 17. So we don't know. They may have left and made their way out, and in chapter 18, they cross the Cadron Valley and go up to the Garden of Gethsemane. So the rest may have taken place as they're walking, or any of you who are married know you've been at a social gathering and you've said, uh, let's go home. And a half an hour later, you get out the door. You know, you just stand there talking or your mate's talking. And finally, you know, we all get around to, yeah, we really need to leave. And you go out the door. So that may have happened here. But the point is, Jesus here could have said, get up, let's run for our lives. Because he knew that Judas had gone out to betray him. He could have made a mad dash for, for saving his life, but he didn't because, as he says earlier in verse 31, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. And the point is this. If you know you're doing what God has commanded you to do, you can stand firm even if you're under fire even if you have all kinds of opposition or you're in a difficult trial, you can say, you know what? I'm in this trial because I trusted God, I obeyed his word, and I'm not going to run. I'm going to stand my ground. A third way to have Christ's peace in troubled times is take your anxieties to the Lord in thankful prayer. And here, of course, I'm coming from Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, and if you haven't memorized that verse and you struggle with anxiety, this is where you start. Write these verses down on a card and read them over many, many times until they're in your brain. Paul there says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all Un, uh, understanding or comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, let me tell you how this verse works. 
about 22 years ago, many of you who have been here a long time may recall this, I came to this church almost 23 years ago, and I wasn't here very many months until a very difficult controversy erupted between me and some former elders who are no longer here over the issue of abortion. And uh, this is the week, by the way, of Roe versus Wade. And uh, they believed that a woman had a right to choose to abort her baby. Stan Johnson was then the youth pastor, and he and I stood and opposed them. And it was a very difficult battle. And uh, it went on for about three or four months. They were trying to get me fired. And it all came to a head in a big meeting that we were having in January of 1993. And I knew that they could try to fire me at that meeting. And I spent that day fasting and praying and seeking the Lord, and the Lord gave me a lot of assurance that he would stand with me because I knew I was being obedient to what he had called me to do. But as I walked up the sidewalk outside toward the door for that meeting, my stomach was just in knots, you know? I was just nervous. And I was reciting Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and I was saying, Lord, why am I anxious? And as I was reciting that verse, two little words popped out of the verse at me. Maybe you missed them when I read it. With thanksgiving. Did you see those words? Let your request be made known to God with thanksgiving. And it just hit me. I haven't thanked the Lord for this trial. And so I literally stopped on the sidewalk and I just bowed my head and I said, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to trust you. Uh, thank you for this trial to strengthen my faith. And immediately I was flooded with God's peace and God uh, gave me assurance that he was with me and uh, he worked it out so that those elders left the church and uh, that problem was um, averted at that point. But the point is both I was being obedient to the Lord because I knew that God hates abortion and I, I knew that I was depending on the Lord then with prayer and with thanksgiving finally and God answered that prayer. The last thing to note is to have Christ's peace in troubled times, trust in Jesus as the Lord of all. Notice verse 29. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. That verse shows us Jesus is a proven prophet. Every word that he spoke came true. He knew the future. He predicted it. Now he is exalted to the right hand of God the Father, sharing in the Father's glory which he had with him before the foundation of the world. And Jesus, in other words, is Lord of all. And if he's Lord of all, you can trust him in all things and know that uh, Satan does not have authority over him. Now, Satan uh, is the ruler of this world, as Jesus says in verse 30. But he's not the ruler over Jesus. He has temporary charge of things here, but he's on a leash. And he can't affect you and, and attack you any further than the Lord allows for your growth and godliness. And Jesus has promised that the day is coming when he will return in power and glory. In Revelation chapter 19, it says he's going to strike down the nations with the sword that comes out of his mouth. He will tread the winepress 
of the fierce wrath of God Almighty, and he will vindicate all of his servants who have suffered in his name. Now, here's the issue. When you get into your next crisis, either you trust him or you don't. (laughs) Which is it? He says, I've spoken these things so that you may believe. You have good reason to believe he is the Lord of all. But you have to trust that. You have to trust him in that. Anxiety has been described as a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. And if encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. That's a beautiful word picture, isn't it? Just that thin stream, you let it go, and like flash floods here in the desert, pretty soon it opens a big channel, and everything floods into that channel. I wonder, does that describe you today? Are you anxious? Or are you trusting? The Lord Jesus ascended to the Father. He is there at the Father's right hand, so you can have joy and peace in that. The Lord Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in you and to teach you all things that you need for every crisis, so you can have joy and peace in that. And the Lord Jesus um, says, I give you my peace. And while you have to wrestle for it, it is his gift to all of us to experience his joy and his peace through faith in troubled times. Father, thank you that you're gracious with me and with us. We struggle with many things. We all have many trials that we face. Thank you for these comforting words that you gave on the eve of your own suffering and death when you could have been focused on yourself and your own impending crisis, and yet you were focused on the 12 or the 11 disciples and on us. Thank you, Father, that you've given, you've been given all authority in heaven and earth, that you're seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. Thank you, Father, that you've sent us your Holy Spirit and given us your peace for our troubled times. And so I pray that all of us would glorify you by trusting you in our trials and seeing Christ exalted in and through us. And I pray, Lord, if any are here without the peace that comes from trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord, that you would break into their lives and show them that peace does not come through good works. Peace does not come through efforts to be religious or whatever. Peace comes as your gift to those who trust in the death of Jesus on their behalf. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. As we conclude, we're going to take an offering and we're going to sing. And if you're